February 21st, 2018. An interview with an anarchist present at the rallies in Parkland, Florida. Organized resistance against ICE raids in L.A. And an announcement for upcoming Crime Think speaking events on this episode of The Hotwire, a weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker. With me, the Rebel Girl. A full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links can be found at our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ex-Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero, or on your radio's dial in Eugene, Oregon, every Sunday at noon on KEPW 97.3 in Fairbanks, Alaska, Saturday mornings at 9 on KWRK 90.9, and in Tacoma, Washington, every Friday at 9 a.m. on KUPS 90.1. Believe it or not, every hotwire is radio-ready, so feel free to put the hotwire on your local airwaves. If there's a story or upcoming event you'd like us to include in a future Hotwire, just hit us up at podcast at crimethink.com. And now for the headlines. All kinds of anti-fascist action has been taking place across Tennessee. In response to a fascist flyer campaign to cover Black History Month posters, Chattanooga Redneck Revolt took to social media and the streets with flyers that say, no racists, no Nazis, No Vanguard America. We will defend our communities. The flyers include contact information for Chattanoogans to alert Redneck Revolt if they see fascist propaganda around town. Meanwhile, the group Friends and Neighbors Rising in Resistance from rural Meigs County, Tennessee, did a mass mailing last week, alerting neighbors to a fascist couple and their compound project in Meigs County. And on Saturday, at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, over 200 people marched against the speaking event by the neo-Nazi Traditionalist Workers' Party. The university allowed the event, despite no student invitation and a whopping 15 people in attendance, who appeared to all be phoned-in neo-Nazi goons who just sat with their hands on their knees. While there was no big confrontation, one anarchist on the ground wrote in to praise the majority of protesters who refused to enter the police-designated protest zone, and a comment that even without confrontation, intelligence gathering can be done at such fascist events that can later be used to disrupt their organizing. On February 10th, anarchists and anti-fascists gathered in Red Square, Seattle, to oppose a so-called Freedom Rally, which featured Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, and University of Washington College Republicans. The right-wingers were outnumbered 4-1, to one. But they had plenty of police on their side, who set up barricades protecting the nationalists. As if the police protection wasn't offensive enough, the University of Washington's administration canceled all other events happening on campus because of the rally, including multiple Black History Month events. Yep, you heard that right. Fascists declared a rally, and a university went out of their way to cancel Black History Month events to facilitate it. The rally ended with some scuffles, plenty of pepper spray, a few arrests of anti-fascists, and Proud Boys getting their tires deflated. An analysis on PugetSoundAnarchist.org celebrates some of the violent retribution that fascists received at Red Square, but also acknowledges, quote, that smashing fascism is not a zero-sum game, 
Much as capitalism will not be smashed if we simply multiply X number of hammers by Y number of windows minus N property destruction charges. We cannot operate as though halting fascism, let alone all forms of governance and control, is a matter of doling out more concussions than we receive. They go on to clarify that that isn't to say that hammers shouldn't be applied to windows or that we should allow fascists a platform, but rather a proposal for conversations about broader strategy, as well as the promotion of anti-racist and anti-fascist cultural events. Red Square is the same location where on Inauguration Day 2017, a supporter of Milo Yiannopoulos shot Hex, an anarchist with the IWW, in the stomach. Hex miraculously survived, and we have an interview with him in the Ex-Workers episode number 62. This year, on the anniversary of the shooting, the IWW and other radicals gathered at Red Square in a commemorative act. They held banners that read, We don't forget fascist violence, murder by pigs, or state repression. And, Our comrade was shot here, January 20th, 2017. The report on its going down mentions that even this act of memory was harassed, albeit pretty pathetically, by a neo-Nazi and college Republican presence. Northwest anti-fascists, we gotta give it up for y'all. You're putting up a tiring, difficult struggle against the fascist creep in Washington and Oregon, and we just want you to know how much your reports, reflections, and acts give us life and give us strength. Thanks for all you are doing. On February 13th, anti-fascist forces in Afrin, one of the cantons of Rojava, issued a call for solidarity as they fight back against Turkey's military invasion. The call reads, The resistance of Afrin is one of the most critical moments in the struggle against fascism of our time. The time to act is now. We call on determined international revolutionaries to join our struggle. We also call upon widespread civil actions against the Turkish state around the world. The anti-fascist forces statement came just days after two internationalist fighters died in defense of Afrin, and a third internationalist was martyred the day of the statement's release. Their call for solidarity has been answered by actions around the world. In Portland, Oregon, members of Demand Utopia flew flags and hung banners in solidarity with Afrin from a highway overpass. Over a dozen indigenous, anarchist, and women's organizations in Mexico and beyond signed a joint statement in solidarity with Afrin, as well as, quote, with their committees, cooperatives, women's organizations, autonomous schools, and to all the efforts of the people of Afrin, who at this moment are suffering the bombs of neoliberal fascism and the attacks of the paramilitary Salafi gangs. In Izmir, Turkey, Kurdish youth claimed responsibility for incendiary attacks against a state-owned gymnasium and a ruling party collaborator's business. In their statement, they call on, quote, all Kurdish youths to take action against the fascist Turkish state everywhere. No young person should wait for a leader because every Kurdish youth is a leader by nature. In the Bay Area, Austin, Texas, and Brooklyn, New York, anti-border activists have confronted and disrupted readings by former Border Patrol agent Francis Cantu. Cantu recently published a book of memoirs, which depoliticizes Border Patrol's job, depicting it more than anything as complicated and sometimes even beautiful. Just listen to this. I had all of these questions that stemmed from, from my time in college, you know, just big, big questions that a lot of us 
are still talking about with respect to immigration and, and border policy. And I thought that doing this kind of a job, this kind of work, being out on the border day in, day out, would give me answers to those questions. Cantu claims he joined Border Patrol to learn how to help immigrant families. Well, Francis, that's not so complicated, actually. Border Patrol is a violent armed force that prevents immigrants from safely reuniting with their families and results in hundreds of deaths throughout the Southwest deserts every year. Although, the exact number of deaths is unknown because in an effort to evade Border Patrol, the force you chose to work for, migrants are forced to tread some of the most vast, hostile conditions on Earth. If you really wanted to help, you could stop profiting off of the stories of the migrants who you captured and instead point people in the direction of humanitarian initiatives like No More Deaths. For a better book on the border, allow us to suggest No Wall They Can Build, a first-person narrative drawing on a decade of migrant solidarity work along the U.S.-Mexico border. You can find it at crimethink.com along with anti-border posters and stickers. And to tell Francis Cantu to his face how you feel about his hipster Border Patrol apologism, you can find his upcoming speaking dates in the article Progressive Border Patrol at itsgoingdown.org. Of course, Border Patrol isn't the only wing of the state breaking up immigrant families. Last week, ICE carried out raids across Los Angeles, arresting over 100 immigrants as political retribution against Los Angeles declaring itself a sanctuary city. In response, about 70 activists and community members blocked an ICE van in front of L.A.'s Metropolitan Detention Center. The Koreatown Popular Assembly, who called for the action, has been organizing for over a year to prepare a rapid response network to counter ICE raids. They canvassed the neighborhood with flyers in Korean, Spanish, Tagalog, Bengali, and English. They operate a 24-hour hotline to monitor ICE raids, and they have trained nearly 100 first responders on an open-source text message alert system. In Houston, high school students walked out in protest of a fellow student's detainment by ICE. Students carried banners that read Black Latina slash Latino Unity and Education Not Deportation. In Minneapolis on Valentine's Day, hundreds participated in the Murdered Missing Indigenous Women's March. In a report on Unicorn Riot, Indigenous marchers were quoted saying, We're marching for stolen women on stolen land, and we're still a colonized people. We're still having to negotiate our basic rights as Indigenous people. And please speak up and don't hide from violence. If you see somebody getting abused, or if you're getting abused yourself, please speak up and no more silence. This past Monday was what the government has deemed President's Day, which observes George Washington's birthday. Yet as a slave owner and profiteer on others' servitude, George Washington is a poor exemplar of the struggle for freedom. Rather than looking to him for a model representing resistance to tyranny, let's remember the slaves and indentured servants who sought to escape from him and the Native Americans who defended themselves against his attacks. CrimeThink just published a lengthy piece on Washington's relationship to slavery and the slaves that defied him. By now... You've heard about the mass shooting at a high school in Broward County, Florida. From the right, we're hearing all about the killer's mental instability and accusations that the authorities didn't act fast enough on the warning signs. On the left, a renewed call for gun control has arisen, to which we ask, where are the Democrats calling for gun control when cops kill teenagers? 
But barely anyone in the mainstream is talking about how, for the third time in a year, a new top 10 deadliest massacre in American history was committed by another white man. Although, for an instant, the media was enthusiastic about finding a connection between the shooter Nicholas Cruz and the white supremacist Far Right, sparked by claims made by the leader of a fascist militia that the killer had participated in his group. These claims were later discovered to be spurious, but there are still three points we'd like to make. First, even if the racist militia leader's claims are false, it still shows how dangerous organized white supremacists are. The fact that he would purposely confuse and distract people from the truth of the events for mere publicity is disgusting. It signals to other fascists that massacres are useful media opportunities for leveraging their opinions. Secondly, CNN reports that social media accounts believed to be cruises included statements against Muslims and threats to kill anti-fascist protesters. The Daily Beast interviewed classmates of cruises who discussed how he would wear a MAGA hat to school. That same report featured YouTube comments praising Elliot Rogers, another school shooter who was influenced by the alt-right and men's rights movements. Even if Cruz did not officially belong to any specific fascist organizations, it is clear that he was influenced and encouraged by the growth of their movements and their affiliated causes like men's rights, Islamophobia, and Trumpism. If you want to know more about Nicholas Cruz's influences and online footprint, we recommend the What We Know piece from It's Going Down, titled Blood, Red, MAGA. Lastly, we'd like to point out that the media's focus on Cruz's scandalous comments has overshadowed the larger pattern of mass murders in the last year. Specifically, that the worst massacres from Las Vegas to Sutherland Springs and now in Florida, were all committed by white men who were abusive towards women. Just like Trump, the latest arc of white masculine violence isn't an aberration. It's an extreme manifestation of the hierarchies of white supremacy and patriarchy, both of which are maintained with normalized daily violence. Some on the left have pointed out that if the killer had been brown or Muslim, headlines would abound about terrorism. If he had been Korean, we might have had a new war. For sure. On the one hand, this is a racist double standard. But as we've discussed in previous Hotwires, we don't find the term terrorism a particularly useful one. Discussing the Sutherland Springs mass shooting in Hotwire 12, we stated, White men, the most violent people in the whole world and in all of history, continue to skirt the T label. How? Well, The word terrorism is a political term. Rather than describing specific behavior, it more so designates what groups are worthy of state repression and surveillance. And in Hotwire 7, we argued for delegitimizing fascists for what they are. Fascists, rather than as terrorists, because... At best, this strategy legitimizes the police as the only force who can supposedly keep us safe. And at worst, it maintains Islam as the standard bearer for extreme hatred and violence, a paradigm that drives fascist recruiting in the first place. There are increasing calls to place more security at schools, with some lawmakers advocating that teachers be armed. You couple this with increased surveillance, and schools become even more like prisons than they already are. In the wake of Sandy Hook, many schools did in fact intensify their school security, 
but it was schools with a majority of students of color that were more inclined to adopt strict surveillance practices. Metal detectors, locked gates, security cameras, random sweeps, and school police. This trend mirrors mainstream society, where white kids have greater privacy rights than kids of color. Therein lies a knock-on effect of increasing school security. It exacerbates existing racial disparity. And with the majority of major school violence happening in schools primarily populated with white students, we don't suppose we need to point out the sick irony of this game plan. Young folks around the country are getting organized in the wake of this latest shooting and are planning a national walkout on April 20th. And students from Stoneman Douglas High School in Broward County are organizing around the tragedy they just experienced. We got in touch with an anarchist in Fort Lauderdale who has been to some of their rallies. Who are we speaking with today? Patches. I work with um, some different groups, including Black Lives Matter Alliance Broward. Um, so, you know, I'm like an anarchist in this group, but there's a lot of other different people working on different issues. And what's been going on since last week's shooting at Stoneman Douglas High? Basically, there's been a lot of different protest activities that have been kind of popping up. Like, for instance, on Friday, there was another high school called South Broward High School where a bunch of students just, like, walked out. And in Parkland, there's actually been, like, pop-up protests, like, kind of in that neighborhood of that school. So we ended up running into some of those people before long. There was sort of, like, I guess a nationwide call for people to do, like, demonstrations about gun legislation and stuff like that. And so there was one in downtown Fort Lauderdale. We did this vigil today with Black Lives Matter to try to, like, show our solidarity and support with people there. We had, like, a lot of signs about this being an issue of white supremacy, that we need to do something about the patriarchal, uh, violent men in our society. You know, like, we've all had constant dealings with dealing with, you know, like alt-right, neo-Nazi, white supremacists, you know, trying to figure out how to keep people from getting hurt at our own events, like all the time because of that. So it's something like we identify with strongly. We brought that message there. There was such a large amount of people there that obviously there were not everybody there that agreed with it. But I think overall it was like, we were like really well received in what was like a really extraordinary situation where we didn't really know how that was going to be. And are there any early takeaways you think radicals elsewhere should know of? I think one thing that's really interesting, especially as like a local organizer, is here's all these teenagers who are like, all of a sudden are like these like all-in activist organizers, like within like three days. And they're calling out, you know, the president on CNN or ABC. It might seem like the specific issues they're talking about might seem like something that we might not be super excited about. But I think having like a spontaneous and growing like youth movement is like a very positive thing, especially as like a local organizer. It's like something people should probably be pretty excited about to see like spontaneous new like activist organizing, especially like as opposed to like, you know, this tragedy happening, something like that not happening. Like that nationwide event is one of many things I've heard of just in the last few days. And I think there might probably be more school walkouts this week, if not in Broward County, than in many other, and then in other places, I think people are like really agitating for that right now. And there's a lot of possibility in all those places, organizing and meeting with, with high schoolers that want to stage walkout over the way they're being treated by their school system and their, their, and, and not just that, but the entire 
like the adult world that's let them down. You know, that's, that's a lot of the perspective that these um, teenagers are bringing up a lot is that they, they want to stop going along with this system and cycle that the adults have made for them because it's letting them down and they're going to stop cooperating. And that, that sounds like a lot, has a lot of potential. With the renewed calls for gun control, we caught up with one of the authors of Dixie Be Damned and Politicians Love Gun Control to discuss how anarchists can engage critically with a possible movement in response to white male mass shootings. First of all, speaking historically, I think it's important to understand uh, that fundamentally gun control has emerged in waves in this country's history directly as a reaction against black folks' efforts towards their own liberation. And the specifics of that we don't have time to get into, but you could talk about the period of Reconstruction when folks were trying to protect uh, themselves after their uh, supposed emancipation. You could talk about Jim Crow era pistol purchase permit laws that allowed sheriffs to prevent folks from uh, buying handguns if they were black. You could talk about Ronald Reagan's efforts to disarm the Black Panthers. Um, and so I think it's important to break with this liberal notion that gun control is something that the state might do benevolently on behalf of communities that face a lot of gun violence. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, the other thing I think it's worth pointing out here is that Gun control has emerged as kind of a, a sort of easy but ultimately false flag for Democrats to, to act like they're responding to a social problem. But I think the point is that party politics are really poorly situated to deal with a problem that cuts to the bone of American culture in such a unique and holistic way. The causes of these shootings are everything from toxic masculinity to uh, post-industrial alienation to the complete uh, breakdown of the mental health system in this country uh, following neoliberalism in the 70s and all that, there's no one single cause going on. And the cause certainly isn't extended magazines or pistol grips on rifles. On the other side, I will say that while party politics are really ill-equipped to, to deal with this this massive social problem, I think radical social movements, on the other hand, are really well equipped to deal with it. I think um, the framework of a social movement actually gives us the ability to address more holistically this kind of problem that just cuts down to the, to the deep cultural level. The last thing I would say, uh, back to talking about why we're, I'm not into gun control, that's very important is that increasingly in the last year, we've seen how important our own ability to conduct armed community self-defense has been. Um, in the face of the rise of right-wing armed movements, lone right-wing shooters, much much like Nicholas Cruz, actually, who are connected to white supremacist movements, it's been increasingly necessary for us to have the ability to defend ourselves. And when we've given up that ability voluntarily things can get really ugly really quick. So I think it's really important to situate and contextualize our own needs for uh, armed community self-defense as well and all that. And, of course, gun control is not going to allow for that. Any, any law that we assist the state in passing with regards to gun control will be used to repress our own social movements tenfold. Does that mean you think it's a waste of time for anarchists to engage in rallies coming out of the Parkland shooting since they have such a gun control focus? I think we have to be critical of this moment and not leap to, to jump into the fray in a way that's uh, incoherent or inconsistent with our own principles. Um, I also don't think we should stand to the side and, and not be involved in any conversations. I think we have to step in the middle of a very complicated 
conversation that doesn't have an immediately accessible anarchist perspective and show up to event public events and be explicit and well-spoken and articulate about why we are not in favor of gun control. In fact, why we're directly opposed to it, but what are other ways that we can try and keep our community safer from the kinds of misogynistic and white supremacist violence that people like Nicholas Cruz represent. Whether or not any one specific demonstration or public forum is worth your time as an anarchist to go to and try and interject your own perspective is going to be up to you. Um, I think sometimes those things are worth our time and sometimes they're not. Um, And there's not a simple answer for that. But I would encourage folks to have increasingly nuanced conversations about uh, firearms and firearms use Um, and especially engage with uh, and acknowledge the white supremacist history behind gun control and really actively call out liberals for that history. Good morning, slaves. Looking for relief from the steaming hot plate of bullshit served up on the daily by the mainstream media? Are you thirsting for solid and reliable information to escape the mind-numbing vortex of corporate news and Trump tweets? Are you ready to check out every time you hear a Despacito on the radio one more fucking time? Then tune your dial to Sub.media, a mouth-watering hub of infotainment and subversion that'll make you want to quit your job and join the motherfucking resistance. Dive into our newly designed website and gorge yourself on one of the 500-plus videos and audio tracks from our vast library of anarchist films, hip-hop, and riot porn, or choose from one of our original shows, like Trouble, Burning Cop Car, A's for Anarchy, Video Ninja Reports, and The Stimulator. F*** Netflix. Watch Sub.media. In this week's Repression Roundup, news continues to trickle out of Florida prisons about the ongoing harassment and repression that prisoners active in Operation PUSH are enduring. Operation PUSH is a work stoppage organized by inmates and prisoners have issued three demands. One, payment for their labor. Two, an end to outrageous canteen prices. And three, reintroduction of parole incentives. In an audio account on It's Going Down, an inmate involved in the strike reports that prior to the beginning of the work stoppage on January 15th, Prisoners active in organizing the strike were transferred to both different facilities and solitary confinement. Additional measures of strike breaking include increased shakedowns and the termination of state phone service at some facilities. Florida prisons have a history of uprisings and work stoppages, and the Florida Department of Corrections is using a steady campaign of repression to disrupt prisoners from organizing. You can follow the hashtag Operation Push on Twitter. And visit our show notes for more information about the strike and how you can lend your support. Scott Warren, the humanitarian aid worker whose human trafficking charges we mentioned last week, was just indicted on an additional charge of conspiracy, bringing his possible sentence up to 20 years. We have a link in our show notes for a No More Deaths organized fundraiser for Scott's legal costs. On Monday... Three members of the Committee for the Defense of Indigenous Rights in Oaxaca, Mexico, were murdered when their contingent was ambushed after leaving a meeting with the State Interior Ministry. They are organizing protests in response under the slogan, Don't Stay Silent. Our tenderness will always be the solidarity among peoples. Organize and fight. Never again a Mexico without us. Animal Liberation Front prisoner Walter Bond has been transferred to Terre Haute Communications Management Unit in Indiana. Needless to say, he could use some support in the form of correspondence. 
we have his new address in our show notes, along with a link to an article about these especially restrictive units, also known as Little Guantanamos, written by former political prisoner Daniel McGowan. And some good news. On Monday, a judge in Durham, North Carolina, dismissed two people's cases and acquitted a third in the toppling of a Confederate monument last summer, the video of which went viral. And yesterday, in the face of this loss, the prosecution proceeded to drop all charges against the remaining five suspects. Radicals in Durham have marched, held press conferences, and kept up the pressure against these charges since day one. When the DA offered so-called better deals for those who turned themselves in, hundreds showed up at the courthouse to demonstrate that the so-called conspiracy of tearing down the racist legacy of Confederate statues extended well beyond the people who put their hands on the rope. Direct action and solidarity gets the goods, y'all. In the latest development in the J-20 case, the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund is suing the D.C. police for collusion with far-right groups like the Oath Keepers and Project Veritas. For those who weren't tuned in last season, prosecutors in the first J-20 trial introduced evidence from doctored videos taken by Project Veritas, a right-wing fake news group who were publicly disgraced when they were discovered trying to dupe a Washington Post reporter. PCJF has won lawsuits against the D.C. police before, and we hope that this one works out in the favor of the remaining 59 J-20 defendants. And lastly, Puget Sound anarchist Black Cross has organized a call-in campaign around Joy Powell, who is placed in solitary in retaliation for her doing a television interview exposing the brutality of the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. The number they gave for the superintendent of Bedford Hills is 914 914- There's a sample script linked in our show notes. We'll close out our episode with political prisoner birthdays and next week's news. Monday was the birthday of Kamau Siddiqui, a Black Liberation Army political prisoner who was arrested in 2002, over 31 years after the murder he was framed for. And on the 26th, Indigenous rights activist Byron Chubbuck better known as Oso Blanco, locked up for robbing banks to raise funds for the Zapatista Rebellion in Mexico. Please take five minutes out of your day and write a letter to Camau and Oso Blanco. Getting your letter can be the highlight of their week. We have their addresses in this episode's show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast, as well as a link to a beginner's guide to writing prisoners from New York City anarchist Black Cross. And now, next week's news, our list of events, that you can plug into in real life. This Saturday, February 24th, anti-fascists in Washington, D.C. are calling for protests outside of a fancy alt-right event called A Night for Freedom. Ha! More like a night for dweebdom. They call for the protest to start at 5 p.m., and the location is to be determined, so stay tuned to facebook.com slash DC for details. But may we suggest that you not go to that page while logged into Facebook? Thanks. This weekend, February 23rd to the 26th, the Earth First Winter Rendezvous will take place near Kiln, Mississippi. There will be workshops, trainings, and movement building. Go to bellyofthebeastef.wordpress.com to find out more. And if you do go and are anxious to put those new skills to the test, there is a week of action to stop the Bayou Bridge Pipeline from February 26th to March 4th. 
The Bayou Bridge Pipeline is the final southern leg of the Dakota Access Pipeline system. You can check out at NoBayouBridge on Twitter or NoBBP.org for a list of already planned actions and to find out which corporations, banks, and other entities profit from the pipeline. On March 3rd and 4th, there will be an anarchist book fair in Hamilton, Ontario. There will be workshops on anarchist history that emphasizes women's participation. Stories from the Syrian Revolution presented by a comrade from Damascus. A discussion of land defense across North America. And plenty of booksellers, info shops, and childcare and kids activities. Go to steelcitybookfair.ca for more information. The Stop Spencer Coalition at Michigan State University has just released their full plans for opposing Richard Spencer's visit to Lansing on March 5th. The brand new call, which you can find at It's Going Down, includes printable flyers, points of unity that focus on solidarity and not working with the police, details about medics and legal observers, a map of the event area, and some strategic points. Basically, there's just two main roads in and out of the venue. The Stop Spencer Coalition is calling for people to gather at noon on March 5th, and they're working on securing lots of parking for those who come in from out of town. The whole thing looks really organized, and we mean that in the best way possible. You can keep up with updates through their Twitter at StopSpencerMSU. Also, tomorrow, February 22nd, the Stop Spencer Coalition is hosting a teach-in on free speech and fascist rhetorical strategies. It's at Michigan State University, MSU, Union Room 50, at 7.30 p.m. Starting March 7th, CrimeThink will embark on a speaking tour for their latest book, From Democracy to Freedom. They will present in Pittsburgh on March 7th, in Morgantown, West Virginia on March 8th, in Cleveland on March 9th, in Bowling Green, Ohio on March 10th, in Chicago on March 11th, in Bloomington on March 12th, in Carbondale, Illinois, on March 13th, and in St. Louis, later in March. Addresses and times for each event can be found at crimethink.com. If you'd like to arrange a presentation in your town or at your university, just contact rollingthunder at crimethink.com. Also in March, folks on the West Coast can expect a J20 Solidarity speaking tour. If you're out West and it's been hard for you to make sense of the J20 case, This is the perfect opportunity to be brought up to speed before the next batch of trials. If you want to help set up a speaking date, email westcoastj20tour at riseup.net. The Southeast Trans and or Women Action Camp will take place from April 26th to 29th in the Smoky Mountains of Western North Carolina. The Action Camp is open to all trans and or women-identified folks. The organizer's call says... This four-day camp will offer workshops on a wide range of topics such as earth skills, conflict resolution, botany, tree climbing, direct action, anti-racist organizing, indigenous caucus, black leadership training, prisoner support, security culture, herbalism, and much, much more. We hope to incorporate and bring together a wide range of individuals from folks in rural Appalachia to southern cities. The relationship between environmental movements and transformative racial and transgender justice is crucial and something that we hope to create discussion around. You can find out more by emailing setwalk at protonmail.com. That's S-E-T-W-A-C. And lastly, we'd like to thank everyone who has reached out in response to our first ever wish list. The offers for help have been, one, really useful, but two, 
totally uplifting. It's touching to hear how many of y'all appreciate the show and are willing to help support us. Crime Think Projects can always use more help, so if you haven't checked it out, head over to crimethink.com to see our full wish list entitled What We Need From You. And to help the hotwire get played on your local airwaves, send us an email at podcast at crimethink.com. And that's it for this episode of The Hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. And thanks to Patches and Neil Shirley for the interviews. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful show notes we customized for this episode at crimethink.com. Every Hotwire is radio-ready, so if you want to replay part or all of this show, just go for it. We can edit episodes down to specific time constraints if you email us at podcast at crimethink.com. You can also send us news or announcements to include in the future. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the hotwire.